Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. What happens when a legendary sports writer looks back nearly a century to recall his upbringing as a Jewish kid, as Hitler made war on the world, and Wall Street made living at home not much fun? We'll get that first person account from an author who's closing in on a century, but showing no signs of slowing down. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the cap to everybody who's enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com, and you can read my columns at the New York Sun. Mostly their analysis of current events through the history I've learned in all of these books behind me, but often sports is the news, and sports certainly is a huge part of culture and of today's story, so sometimes I get those sports columns in as well. In this episode, our time machine welcomes aboard a real time traveler. My guest's name is Jerry Eisenberg, and his memoir, the most personal of his many books, is titled Baseball, Nazis, and Natick's Hot Dogs, Growing Up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. Mr. Eisenberg is one of just two daily newspaper columnists to have covered the first 53 Super Bowls. He's also been there for 54 consecutive Kentucky Derbies and for the last five Triple Crown winners. Mr. Eisenberg also earned the Red Smith Award for sports writing and has been named the New Jersey Sports Writer of the Year five times. Oh, one last thing. He's also an inductee in 17 Halls of Fame. (laughs) He faced anti-Semitism, the Great Depression, and World War II. But through all that, he had one love, baseball. And that helped him to get through the tough times and gave him some of the greatest moments in his life, which he shared with all of us as readers. Okay, now that we've arrived back in New Jersey's largest city during the 20th century's toughest decades, Let's join Jerry Eisenberg for Baseball, Nazis, and Natick's Hot Dogs. And here we are with Jerry Eisenberg. He's joining us to chat about Baseball, Nazis, and Natick's Hot Dogs. Sir, it's a real honor, and I want to thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, it's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere at my age. If I stop every time to laugh at, at you, as I had the time to do in columns, but when I when I would read you, but I can't do that here, or else we'll never get done. But that's right. a great way to start this book because this book starts with laughter. It starts uh, with literally how it all began and follows into what may be the first ever first person account of getting a bris. So <laughs> that gives people an idea what they're getting here out of baseball, Nazis, and Natick's hot dogs. I wanted to ask, would your parents approve of the way that you begin the book, saying that they threw back the covers, put their arms around each other, and created you? That's how it starts. I think if they were here, they would have forgotten what it means. (laughs) So see what I said about the laughter? This is what what you're getting, and I mean it sincerely out of the book. Uh, Which one of them contributed to your sense of humor? We're going to get into your father and your love of baseball, him sharing that with you. But which one of them did you get the, the sense of humor and the, the, the desire to write from? Well, the sense of humor was a defense mechanism. I was not a very gregarious kid. Uh, I didn't have a ton of friends. I had a couple of really good ones, but not a lot. And uh, I always sort of went my own way. And 
I always found that humor was the best way to shut someone up. Didn't work with Hitler, but I went to David as well. You had your belt with boxing too, so maybe maybe I'll skip ahead to that because that's that's something that we get here in the book is the story of you you put on some boxing gloves and it was such a, a different world back then. Then of course later you you get to meet the champs. You wrote more about Muhammad Ali than than anybody else. Uh, had this just an incredible career. So I wanted to ask since you covered more of his fights than anyone else, what will readers learn here in baseball Nazis and Native hot dogs? about the sport of boxing. In my book, there's a lesson to learn. The Schmeling Lewis fight is in my book. And by the way, it's the 80th anniversary of that fight next week. So there was a guy, I'm gonna tell you a story behind that fight because you can apply it here. It was a guy named Harry Sperber. Harry Sperber was a, uh, was a uh, German refugee, true. Did his time. He was a newspaper guy. So he got, we, you know, we used to have like 19 language, English language, and we had German language in New York City. We had a lot in where he worked for a few years. And he gets a job with Staatszeitung, which is a German language paper here. And he goes up to Speculator, New York. In Speculator New York, he's training, uh, uh, Schmeling is training to play the rematch for Lewis. Now, most, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. He's, you play a quarter, you get to see the ex-champ in a challenger box in that outdoors in Speculator. All the writers are down there. Harry Sperber is sneaking up the hill and gets in, the doors open, into um, Schmeling's cottage. And he's looking for some way to make this a Nazi American fight. So it's none of that when at the, at the signing. He opens the closet door. The trainer, and he, th- he, makes, and he thinks it's Schmeling, but it's not the trainer, his name Max Mack. He's a freshly laundered and pressed stormtrooper uniform in the closet. Well, he runs down to where the box gets all the American writers, half of whom were Jewish from New York, up the hill. Look at this. They all write that day, and now the fight becomes us against them. That's how that happened. Uh, the, the story was, as I got older, I knew them both. And uh, I miss Cain and Abel by about a year, but I knew those two guys both. And my dad was convinced that Roosevelt, you know, let it be known. He had called Lewis and said, you're fighting for America. You, you've got to do this. And Lewis was ready to go. That's according to the myth. Schmeling had knocked Lewis out once, cold, and uh, knew how to beat him then. Thought he knew this time, but it didn't work. He went and looked at a film just before he fought Lewis the first time. Saw Lewis on film and turned to Max Mack in the train of his head and he said, I think I see something. And what he saw was Lewis dropping his left hand after he threw the right. Max waited, bang, 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 eight, nine, ten, over. 
Lewis's first defeat. That's why Lewis was steamed. It had nothing to do with Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, it had to do with the fact that this guy had knocked him out first time and beat him badly because he saw something. Meanwhile, Schmeling, uh, he was fighting. He wasn't fighting for Hitler. He was fighting because he, he beat this guy once. He was too old to win the title, everybody said, but he could win it now. That's what motivated him. When I told my father that story, he reacted, as all Jews act, react when they got something negative in their mind. He said, I said, well, look, I know these guys, and this is what I'm, and he said to me, well, that's a nice theory, but you're still full of crap. And he said the same thing when she got to understand my I got off your question, but it's a good it's a good story for you. That's 1938 great. was a big year in my life. 37, 38 because I turned 80. The picture behind you, I was I was not almost nine then. So I'm eight. Uh, first thing I happen happens is Hank a fellow named Hank Greenberg is hitting home life. and he's gonna catch Ruth. He's gonna pass Ruth. Now, there were two topics you could talk about at the dinner thing. One was baseball. I really should say what it was, not dinner, it was supper, supper thing, kitchen. And, and uh, the first was baseball. My father had been a minor league baseball player, and uh, that was very acceptable. And he lived a life of frustration because he never got to run out into the polo grounds and play second base. So... You could talk baseball, you could talk Hitler and the Nazis. We lived 10 blocks from the Irvington North border. Irvington was the state headquarters of the German-American Bund. Anybody going crossing that border lane, either way, there was trouble. Always trouble. And if this was the 30s, anti-Semitism. Look, you're talking about anti-Semitism, right? I'm rambling a little bit, but it's all going to go to the same thing. We had Gerald L. K. Smith, a lay minister in the Ozarks, who built a resort hotel and invited all the right-wing Jewish-hating people to come there as a resort. And every night he put on a play called the Perfidious Jews Circumcised. Perfidious Jews killed him. Let me start this again. Sound like a mighty trouble. It was about the death of Jesus and fingered the Jews. Well, people went at a great time and the, the ideas were reinforced. We had William Dudley Pelley, minor league Nazi. Hitler and, 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 and Mussolini took all the good colors, the black and brown shirts and the black shirts. So he became the silver shirts in Boston. And he used to come down to Newark with them on Sunday. Because another guy, Father Coughlin, the radio priest of the air from Royal Oak, Michigan, was pre preaching anti-Semitism, had a newspaper called Social Justice. And they would sell it in front of Blessed Sacrament Church on my corner. And the, the Pelly sent these two guys down with the truncheons and the uniform to stand next to the salesman. Anybody sending me a remark? They beat the crap out of. I was there one day when they beat the crap out of a guy who said something, 
and a cop on the beat turned and walked away. I mean, this shit was the climate of opinion in those days. Well, one day my father is listening, the radio is always on in the kitchen. I'm a, a first-generation American, so we come from the notion. Better listen to the news because something might be happening to you and you don't know it. So it was on all the time. Father Coffin comes on here. My father didn't know he was, never heard. And my, my dad was then working five and a half days a week. He'd been cut back from six. And this is the depression, the heart of the depression. So Coffin comes on and he says, I know why you're struggling, so I know why it's hard for you to make a living. It's Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. And I'm going to tell you why next week. My father says to my mother, I remember like it was yesterday, he says, you know, this guy makes some sense. I'm going to send $3 donation. Following week, we're in the kitchen. We're having supper. The radio priest in the air comes out. He's like, told you last week, I tell you about Wall Street. It's the Jew, the Jew, the Jew. He's what's happening. My father's got his really relish his one cup of coffee at night. He had it in his hand, pulling, pushing it toward his lips. Threw the cup at the wall and broke it a million pieces. Now my sister, you know, I'm getting into this way. She just keeps quiet. She's here. And I'm very interested in what's going to happen next. He turns to my mother and he says to her, I gave that mumser, which in Yiddish means bastard. I gave that mumser $3 last week. $3. My mother looks at him and she says, you think maybe we could get a refund? That You mentioned my mother. That's how she approached your problems. There was always a solution. Sometimes it was a devious when my father needed a they needed to send me to military school. They didn't need it. I wish they hadn't, but they did. I was a rotten kid. I mean, never to them, never to them. But every teacher and I had a problem. I mean, I was awful. And uh, my father didn't have the money. And my, I had an aunt, Tante Annie. Tante Annie made us her kids. She never had any kids. That was a pain in the ass for me because I kept pinching my cheeks and and I'd be praying. We didn't live near any parks. I'm playing touch football on the street. She's visiting my mother just about every day. She goes home. She gets on the phone. Send Lois down, my sister. Send Lois down. Get him out of the street. Get him. He's going to get killed by a car. He's going to get killed. This is what I had to deal with. And the pink cheek pinch. But she saved my family in many ways. My dad needed cataract operation. Very delicate operation in those days. When you had it, they tied you to the bed so you couldn't move your head. He didn't have the money to have it. She gave my mother the money. But if my mo he knew where my money came from, he would have had the operation. The first supermarket in Newark opened a block away from me, just an acne supermarket. I'd go up to a little red wagon, and the housewives would come out, and I'd say, I can, you don't have to carry that. Put it in the wagon, and I'll take it, and I get a quarter. And sometimes I make $2 a day. So she gave my mother the money. My money says, mother says, the supermarket, the supermarket, you'd be right. We're, we're living like millionaires. I save so much money having. Go into that picture on the, there's money in here. I don't know how much it is, but I'm sure it's enough for your operation. She knew how much it was, and she knew how much the operation was. So he took it and thanked her, and never knew that my aunt put up the money. Never would have touched it. Well, so now we also had Charles A. Lindbergh, America's hero. 
Trump talks about America first, America first. That was the name of Lindbergh's Lindbergh was a Nazi. He was a freaking Nazi. And he said, we can't win a war with Germany. We should make them our friends. And he became the president of America first. I remember sitting in the living room one day. My father's got the Newark Star Lake all rolled up in a ball, fires it at the wall and says, lucky Wendy, my ass. It was stronger. Therefore, when I was eight, when that picture was taken, and my sister was 10, we were the only two kids in the state of New Jersey, I'm sure, who knew what the Reichstag was, where it was, and who burned. Because we talked about Hitler and the Nazis and the Bund almost every night. And the picture on it, that is the story behind the picture on it, and, the, and that's how neat it's got into the story. Look closely behind my father, there's a movie market. It's the newsreel theater. My father couldn't sit still for more than 30 minutes, and that was the show. It was real. That's where it goes. One day he says to me, What are you doing Saturday? I said, Playing baseball. He said, No, you're not. What do you mean? You're going with me. Well, I don't want to go, but you're going with me. You go downtown, that's right over his right shoulder, the marquee of the theater. You go in there because the previous week, the Nazis had the Madison Square Garden rally. And 19,000 people, 12,000 of them stormtroopers. Florida ceiling cut out of Hitler. Florida ceiling cut out of Washington. The Nazis, the swastika everywhere. He wanted me to see that. He was determined. He went in the theater, my father lost him. My father was wounded in World War One. He enlisted the first day that, that they declared war. He was wounded in World War I. Now we're coming out of the theater. And he said, those monsters, those bastards. I helped stop them in 1917 and again in 1918. And I'm deaf in one ear because of them. They got to be stopped again. Well, it wasn't the Nazis when he went in. But he kind of wrote his own history as he went along. And as a result of that, I had to see it. He's walking out the door and he goes into his diagram and he says, they got to be stopped now. I mean, you saw, I look up at him and I say, well, they're in Berlin, aren't they? He looks at me and he says, no, no, Jerry. They're here. They're here. I say, where? I'm looking around. I want to see how they're hiding behind the building. They're going to grab me. I mean, and I obviously showed that. The father said, hey, listen, how about lunch? How about a Needix hot dog? And I said, only with an orange drink. That was the combination of Needix. They were so freaking big in New Jersey and New York. The old garden on 48, 49th and 50th Street, half the lobby was devoted to a Needix uh, fast food place. And uh, anyway, it all came together. And now it's a, it's a repetition in many ways. So now um, he, he's really determined to do something about it. He couldn't do much with it after all. He, was, he couldn't go back to it. And he was 45 years old when I was born. But um, that put one of the three most important things I learned was from my, my parents. One was really... You have to stand up for what's right. Whatever it is, you have to say, 
He once said to me, if a woman or a girl's in trouble, I was a kid then, so he really met a girl. It's your business. And if it's your sister, break his neck. That conversation started because one day I came home, I had seen, you know, when sidewalk is not tended right, it tilts a little bit. Somebody had written in blue chalk, all Jews are kites. Well, I knew I couldn't fly. I was that smart anyway. And I told my old man, what does this mean? What does this mean? She said, it means it's the work of a mormonic illiterate. The word is kike, not kite. Sometimes it's feeny. Sometimes it's jubilant. Here's the thing. I'm not going to count it. Don't come home and say that Charlie told you that Jimmy said That doesn't count. If somebody gets in your face and says one of those, here's what you're going to do. You're going to smile so he relaxes. You're going to hit him with the best right hand you ever do, right in the mouth. And if you don't finish with the left hook, don't come home. Well, I don't think he meant the last part, but I know he meant the first part. And I lost a lot of fights that way, too, because anti-Semitism was everywhere. Well, you had to try. Uh, you know, as far as my past goes, I um, was on the radio about a couple of weeks ago, and a guy said to me, you're, of all the actors, sports writers, you, you are the sports columnist, you are the dean. How did that happen? I said, well, it's very sad. I hate to be the one to break the news to you. They're all dead. To me, you don't forget things that are important. My memory's not the best that night. Well, I'll say this. That book over your right shoulder there was written with no notes. I didn't know I was going to write this book. It was 92 years of memory, and I left a lot of good stuff out. I want to, I want to buy all the books back and put it in there because other things I've forgotten. That's why you're here. You could tell me. That's the that's the idea, guy. I want people to definitely pick up baseballs, Nazis, and Natick hot dogs to get what you wrote in there. But here we're getting a little more, and I think people are getting a flavor of maybe literally there in the case of those great hot dogs of what you experienced growing up in a world that's gone, a world that uh, again you, I'm speaking with Jerry Eisenberg here, and he's the author of Baseball Nazis and Natick's Hot Dogs, growing up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. And I wanted to quote Pulitzer Prize winner Ira Burkow. He says the book's an autobiographical account of a dramatic era in our history by one of the finest American sports writers. That is one of the finest American writers, a beautifully crafted and touching recollection of those times. That, that says it really well. And I think the thing about touching is you touch all the bases here from from the very beginning the which i guess is a, a sports pun but you you make people really feel what you're feeling taste what you're feeling smell what you're feeling that's good writing well to me the best thing i've done the guy from minnesota who was traded to the phillies had um, i forget the name of it these jerky movements you can and sometimes you curse out loud he goes to the phillies and he says I'm going to keep my mouth shut because who knows? I'm going to meet a guy nice to meet you, motherfucker. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'll be quiet. He shows up and the players walk over. They knew he could hit. We had to have him on the club and, you know, I hope you're happy. He doesn't say anything, nothing. And the whole first morning, morning workout is finished. He comes back, he's eating a sandwich, got his shoes off, he's sitting in front of his locker. Yeah, that's nothing. I have to tell you the whole scene. That's how you become a writer. 
And I forget who always came out and came over and said, uh, well, we're glad to have you. He didn't say a word. So he looked at me and laughed. He said, well, nice talking with you. And when they found out what it was, I forget what it's called. They all, that was the word that tells, if you had a good game, they'd walk over and say, nice talking with you, nice talk. It was a, and he was part of the truck. More than that, that made him part of the team. And when, you have to understand the psychology of real athletes. There are two kinds of, three kinds of athletes. Athletes who are great and deliver and to know there's a bigger world than they are. Then there's the athletes who are great and think they are the world. Then there's the athletes who are not very good, are going to live up what they're going to do, and are going to be us against you. And that's what, and the, the, you know, when, it, when I first covered the Yankees, I was already writing a column by then. I was the youngest columnist in the country, I think, of a major paper. And uh, the furthest west city was St. Louis. So it was great. We went by train. We traveled with the team. They didn't pay for us. We were on the same train. We ate lunch sometimes or dinner. We played cards. I didn't play cards because dice was my game. But anyway, uh, we knew each other. They were making more than us, but not that much more. Nobody was making any money doing anything then. And, and that all disappeared with the with free agency and all the money. And baseball, in some ways, is dying compared to what it was. The newspaper business, in a lot of ways, is dying compared to what it was. And the reason is the same in both cases. I had to write a book I called it Autopsy, Death by Suicide. The newspapers came into the internet. You can't count on the internet for anything. I, I don't care how many accolades. And you notice on television, they're all writing. They all say, the New York Times said, the Washington Post said, they're not saying we found out. There's a difference. And, and it, that's the big change. We produced two or three television uh, uh, generations who are devoid of what I call intellectual curiosity. And a country without intellectual curiosity becomes a kind of country that's got to show, it's got to pull down the hitting of the. I came here to Los Henderson, Nevada. I'm here a week. I mean, I knew the town and everything because I used to come here all the time for fights. My wife and I moved. We're sitting in a casino coffee shop. And I say, look at those two girls. And two girls about 18, 19. They're both they're not looking at each other. And I said, you know what makes it even sadder? They're talking to each other. <laughs> that was my conclusion. But that, you know, uh, well, well, I, mem I remember that's what it's all about. Yeah. I, I go into a store, a drugstore, right across the highway here. And um, I pick up a, something I bought for, it was about a dollar ninety-four, and I hand the girl behind a counter, $5 bill. She says, oh dear, I'm not good at making change. I said, listen, listen, sweetheart. I'm great at making change when it's coming in my direction. I'll back you up. She says, wait a minute. 
She reaches in his rug, pulls out a handheld calculator. Here's the thing. I said, don't they, this is a true story, don't they teach you anything in high school about math? She looked at me and she said, I'm not in high school. I go to the College of South Nevada. Where are we headed? Yeah. Well, the I'll tell you, the this is the th- reason that I wanted to speak to you today about, about your book, because if you know a young person, uh, to, to put a book in their hands, I mean, my, my mother-in-law lives up in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and she said she gave one of her grandkids a uh, hundred bucks. Now, in my day, it, certainly in, in your day, you're talking the 30s and 40s here in the in the book. Uh, that's a lot of money. And she said, my grandson looked at me and said, what am I going to do with this? Because everything's digital now. He'd, literally, the cash didn't. And that shows how different, I think. And this book, it, it's from so long ago, from another world. You're a voice from this world. That's why I refer to you in the intro as a, this is a time traveler here, ladies and gentlemen. 92 years, you've been there like Zelig. Uh, at all of these uh, great sporting events and great moments and the, the Schmeling fight and all of these things. And and you did it with your name proudly. And I think there's a, there's a, a tendency, uh, certainly back in your day, to Americanize your name. If they did want to do what a lot of sports writers do now, they want to change their name to Jerry Ice or something. They want to shorten it. Was oh, there yeah. ever any feeling? And what do you think that young kid, that young Jerry would think today, knowing you've stamped that name proudly, literally in the pages of history? What more, would you think? More important is what my father would say. My sister wanted to be an actress. She came home from Howard State and she was told television was just coming in. They're going to control television advertising. She said that's what she was told by a guy who knew because he was an advertiser. And he said, change your name, go to work in a studio doing something, anything, but keep telling people who look like they have it. Some position of authority, you want to be a performer, you want to be. And eventually it could happen. She drops the I Z off the front of the name. She drops the G off the end of the name, and she becomes Lois Ember. My father says to me, about that time, I'm, I'm going to college. Uh, it's that we're in urban swimming. The urban, I always correct everybody. It's not Rutgers, it's Rutgers, Newark. Although I say Newark, Rutgers. I went to New Brunswick, so I, I know the difference. I did take one class in Newark a summer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It was a whole different world. Everybody at school worked. I worked 40 hours a week at night to go to college. My father, who came here at age eight from Lithuania, on the first generation there. After the military school episode, and I wish they would buy the book and read it because I don't want to waste your time retelling it to you. With that, those post high school military years, they shaped me in a lot of ways too. I went back as the keynote speaker there. The only time I went there, 60 years after I graduated. And I said, You want to know why I'm here? I want to tell all you how much I hated this place. Hated it. Now, these people. This down the deep south, it's the south, right? Many of them didn't go to college. This was their college to be the school went bankrupt. That alumni association is still active because that was their college. And they think I want to get up and tell them what a great how this. I said, it shaped me all right. It taught me one thing. 
They told me sometimes when people are full of shit, tell you you can't do this, you're going to go do it. That's what I learned here. And I thank you, everybody here, for helping learn teach me. I remember the teacher I had in military school, one of the two good teachers I had in my entire life anywhere. He's, and he didn't quite get me either. He, co- he was my basketball coach. And he thought he was my JV baseball coach, except he saw me in the outfield for one inning. And he, he knew talent. And he said, congratulations, you just became the scorekeeper for this team. Not the left fielder. And uh, he said to me, well, I'm getting ready to graduate. What are you going to do? I assume you're going to college. I said, my old man wants me to go to college. I don't have the money. He has less money than I have, and I'm in high school. And uh, I want to go in the Army. I'll get my GI Bill. This is Everybody conspires to put me in positions I don't want to be in, but you say they come out good. I wound up in the Army because I, I wanted to go because the when Korean War did start. My sophomore year, 70,000 North Koreans come across the border, and now my college is a very different affair. When I come out of school, I'm not going to have a choice. I'm going to Korea. But you learn things because by accident. There are no coincidences. There are accidents that you do not take advantage of. Because most of the stuff I learned by accident, I was a tip. I, 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 in grammar school, as you know from reading the book, I was obsessed. I was in the well, this is after the third grade, but in the fourth grade, I fourth or fifth grade, I sat next to a girl in June. And I always looked at her in the corner of my eye because she wore sweaters that were t- a size too tight to school. And I kept saying, what are those bumps? What are those? So I asked my mother, you know, June has these bumps. They're interesting, but I, what are they? And my mother said, ask your father. So I go to see my father. You know what he's going to say? Ask your mother. And I decided, which he did. What I decided was, obviously, he's got some terminal disease, and they know I like him, so they don't want to discuss it with him. Two years later, I found out what those bumps were. Not her bumps, but I found out what those bumps were. Uh, you find out things by accident. And, it, and it's great if you, if you can take the knowledge that you acquire and put it so if it's legitimate. It may come back to you nine years later. I want that whole book for knowledge and the book that you're talking about, we're talking about. I'm in Nevada where you cannot get pizza. Yeah, you can buy it in a hundred places, but it ain't pizza. It's the water. Bill Clinton says the economy, it's the water. And that's why Newark at one point had five rooms. The water. And they moved to Milwaukee. The water. There's a guy out here who's the best pizza, but not great. These people think it's good to watch. Well, they never had pizza. <laughs> they eat the pieces of cardboard is what this is out here. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and they don't know. Going back to the guy in high school, the coach, said, said well, you got to go to college. I said, yeah, well, well, I think I'd like to be a writer. He said, well, I, you have talent, which is why we're talking about it. What kind of writer would you like to do? I said, well, you know, my old man, Gave me a level baseball, and he wasn't very proud. I think I'd like to be a sports writer. He looks at me like he's trying to scrape dog off the bottom of his shoe. 
And then he says to me, well, if you ever get serious about life, if you ever get serious, write what you know. I once wrote a comment, oh, so many people criticized me. How can you write about that? World Series game. Sandy Koufax is setting the record for World Series record. There was a guy named Harry Bright, a lifer in the minor leagues. And he finally gets traded to the Yankees. He's been in baseball about 11 years. He's the last batter Koufax has to face. I go to him after the game, not Kopex. <clears throat> First of all, all these guys, everybody else had the curve work. I didn't want to be involved. I went to Harry Bright. I said, What was it like? He said, Let me tell you. And nobody was there. I mean, nobody wanted to talk to him. He said, Let me tell you. I played in cities. I tell you the names you won't even recognize. 11 years, 13 years, whatever. And suddenly I'm in the major. Suddenly I'm in the World Series. And suddenly I'm playing a World Series game in our own park. And I get up and 60,000 people are rooting for me to strike out. How do you think it felt? That tells you more about the emotion. In, in a, in a, that's what you have to That's what you have to um, I was in high school. My dad, of course, the Giants. Were, we had a, I'll tell you this part. My dad had an old Philco radio. It's got to be the strongest machine ever built. Because you would sit at one end of the porch and Mellot would strike out, bang, bang, on a tunnel. Carl Hubble would throw out pitch, bang, bang. At the other end of the porch was my mother and Rabbi Joachim Prince, very famous rabbi. Just for the record, he was the warm up man for Martin Luther King on the moor. He introduced Martin Luther King. More and more important than that, he bar mitzvah with Jerry Eisner. And that was not an easy task. Dr. Aaron Kranz was the bar mitzvah teacher. And Dr. Prince would come to my house every summer night. My father screaming at the radio at one end of the porch. They're talking very something because that was his rule. No interruptions for the ball game. One night he breaks the rule. He says, Harry, I need this halfway off the porch. I need a favor. My father looks at him and says, not now, not now. Melod is coming to bat. I am convinced that on that night, the Messiah, the real Messiah, comes to 80 Shanley Avenue and says, Harry, it's time we have the talk, the talk. And my father says, Can I wait five minutes? Melod is coming to bat. <laughs> so in this night, when he broke the rule, my father ran your mind. After he finished, he said, Now, what is it you want? He said, Well, Got to tell you, I want you to teach me baseball. My father says, I don't think you care. He says, I don't. My two sons are here with me. I want them to have a relationship over baseball with me like you have with Jerry. So my father talks to him. My mother gets up. She knows what's coming. She leaves the porch. My father talks for an hour about baseball. Telling my father, talking about baseball, it's like giving my first wife a valid credit card. Didn't know when to stop. So he says to my father, I don't know what I can do for you in return. I never, never see you in shul, temple. Never see you there. And the truth was, I saw him there twice. 
once for my bar mitzvah and the second for his funeral. And I will tell you this. He was more of a Jew. Some of the ideas he couldn't voice when he knew. And Dr. Prince says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to go on vacation in September. But Jerry gets permission. I'll cancel my vacation. And Harry, I'll give you a real moment so I'll concentrate on Jerry. How's he doing with his half tour? says, How do I know? I don't even know what the half tour is. He said, Tell him to come out here and bring his book. Well, two beats before that, I should have gone out the back door. But it's summer. The windows are open. I'm in the living room. I hear the conversation on the porch. I'm stuck. I know something neither of them knows. My voice is changing. My father hears it every day. He and doesn't realize what it is. He says, all right, chant. Chant for me. And I, at that point, he puts his hand in his head. This guy knows four languages and so many said, stop, I'm begging you, stop. Four more like you or we will be slaves in Egypt again. I'm taking over this for Well, it got to the point, I'm playing baseball. Badly, oh, so badly, but I want to be a second baseman like he was, right? Now, he says, I'm talking to Dr. Aaron Krantz on Monday. I said, he's going to get a surprise. Dr. Aaron Krantz doesn't know who I am. He has never seen me. I'm supposed to be taking more Mitchell instruction now for about six months. And so first he's going to know I exist, and then all hell is going to break loose with everybody. Coming home from school on Monday, I got my baseball glove with me. If I turn right, I'm going home. If I turn left, I'm going home. I turn left. Dr. Aaron Krantz comes to visit my mother. I'm playing baseball. And he's, he's a, he, he, he walks the way I walk now. He walks like a herniated hairpin. He's got that stenosis in his back. And he's got the beaver hat. And he's got the tits hanging down, you know, from the inside of his suit. Always had a suit. And he rings the doorbell. My mother says, who are you? And he says, you're Sadie Eisenberg. So I know who I am. Who are you? I'm Dr. Aircraft, and then why are you here? I'm looking for Jared. But aren't you the bar mitzvah teacher? Yes, I am. So you should know her. He she must be with you. You see, he's not with me. Where is he? At that point, my sister, always eager to please if it screwed me. I know where he is. I will take you there. She grabs him by the arm. She walks him to the ball. He sees it. The only thing he sees. These kids yelling, hollering. One person you see, the guy playing second base. They're playing the ball, pitchers throwing the ball. He's walking through all this while the game is like, got to me by the ear, pulls me out of the street, walks me up Clinton Avenue, past Seymour, past Farley, past Tracy, past Bullock, and then to Shannon, where I live. But on the corner is a, is a, is a temple. Takes me up the steps without ever letting go of my ear. Shit, that's where you will sit in that classroom. That's where, from now on, Dr. Prince has told me, you are special, and I'm going to find out how special you really are. He found out. 
He was dying. He was terrified of me getting up there and doing something wrong, which I did. And my sister comes to me. I used to call her Goody Two-Shoes. She comes to me and says, you're going to do the right thing today. I thought she was encouraging me, but I'm like, I'm rich. You're going to go, you're going to apologize to Dr. Eric Well, you put him through. I said, I'm not going to. Why should I do that? It's the right thing to do. She haunted me that phrase all my life. She probably made me, made me a better person. I go to the morning to Barbara Trenton. He's an ultra-intellectual. I open it. I can't see him. There's smoke. I look, there's an air. I'm, I, he's orthodox. He's smoking. I promise. The big ashtray. He's like 21 cigarette butts in it. He's terrified about what I'm going to do. And I said, I want to thank you for being patient and for not telling my parents about me. But I got to tell you, I'm not going to let you down today. And she said, you're not going to let me down no matter what you do. You're going to answer to a higher authority. Don't screw it up. But he didn't say screw it. And now, I'm up on, this is the most ornate graphic. We don't belong to this temple. We don't belong to any temple. This is the most ornate temple in New Jersey at the time. There's a pulpit with six marble stairs on either side. I'm going to get the big traditional handoff of the Torah, walk down those steps, walk through the congregation, he's the first one, and walk back up. Except it didn't go as plain. The rabbi goes to make the handoff of the Torah, right? He turns left, I turn right, I have to make me cover. He hits me in the shoulder with the Torah. I'm juggling it like this. I'm at the top of the steps. I have to go down those steps. I haven't got, this handoff would have not made the pen realize. I really can't quite muster. It's still sideways on my shoulder. I'm going down the steps. I turn and I look at Dr. Prince, who no longer has eyes. He's just got two glazes staring at me, staring at me. I think, oh God, what does every 13 year old boy think of 74 hours a day? Who else is sex? I'm on the third step, one to go, and I look at him and I say, oh, oh, if I drop, it's a thing now, it's not the Torah anymore, that's God. If I drop this thing, don't put a curse spell on me, I won't get a heart on the rest of my life, but I recover. <laughs> These are the stories in the book. My, I want you to know, sir, my face, I haven't been showing myself much, mostly because you've been talking about, my face hurts and, and from laughing. And it's hard to just laugh out loud in a book. It's hard to be smiling because you, you feel all these feelings and these, these emotions. I laughed when I wrote it. Yeah, okay. And realized, you said you, had, you didn't uh, think you'd finish. You, you had to know you would finish. Well, I laugh because... Um, I was all my memories I hadn't thought about in years. And then checking back, I said, I couldn't have been that. I realized what an asshole I couldn't have been that bad. I could have been this bad. But I was, I was, I was. The best, my, I would go to military school. I don't want to be there. The commandant, maybe he, he and his wife called him a commandant. To me, he's no commandant. He's the algebra teacher. I'm failing algebra. He's the worst teacher I've ever had in my life. The only one I had a worse experience with was I always dated older women. And uh, 
I met this girl two two grades ahead of me at the schoolyard. She wanted to go to movies Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we go to movies. The lights go out. I get pricked. She slaps me in the face, but she had a free ride, so she moves five seats and she's watching the movie. I found out on Monday she's my teacher's daughter. That was an interesting year. Shocking that teachers did uh, all love you. <laughs> and remember, remember, I always say happenstance. You know? I'm in military school, and I go to the Alfred Commandant. I said, because he said, my door is always open. Your problems are my problems. Okay. So there, away we go. I come in. I knock on the door. Six o'clock at night. Canadian murder reporting, sir. Why are you here? Well, you said your door is always open. And I have a request. What's your request? The request is, I'm failing algebra. You know it better than I do. Only way I can pass is by throwing myself on the mercy of the court. But if you'll give me an extra hour after lights out, I'll get caught up. He looks at me and says, why is it you Jews always want a bigger piece of the pie? I can't tell you what was trying to come out of my mouth. It couldn't get loose because I was biting my tongue too hard. And I said to him, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I was furious. I'm getting a bigger piece of the pie. He's a born-again Christian. I'm a Jew. But why is it if I'm getting the bigger piece of the pie? On Saturdays, as a rat, a freshman, I have to go to mandatory YMCA meeting. On Saturday, as a rat, I have to sing Living for Jesus. And finally, every once a month, he brings in a, an evangelist named Kerry Barker, who's telling me, as a rat, if you don't come forward now and accept Jesus, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. I said, I might own a bigger piece. He swallowed the whole day of pie. So I spent my whole military basically trying to get even with him and the band director. The band director I could, I could beat because it's a very gifted music. It's what I wanted to do for a living. And uh, I played four instruments. I took arranging and composing. And, uh, I got to get this guy. My senior year, it was a new instrument. Did you say baritone horn? Yeah. That's what I played. Oh, then you know. Rutgers University marching band. Oh, then you know what I'm talking about. This was a marching band. And he throws it on my lap and he says, You know everything. You've told everybody this before. You know everything. So you'll figure out how to play it. Don't bother me with it. You're the baritone horn player now. That's how, they, that's how they get y'all. That's very similar how they got me. And then he says, and the only thing I will tell you is the fingering is the same as the trumpet. And as he's walking off, I hope, I never played the freaking trumpet. <laughs> and he's gone. Well, you know the baritone horn is probably the easiest thing in the band to play. I mastered it in my four days. Because I went... When I was a musician, but I also went to the trumpet player, show me the fingering and whatever else. He had said to me, the first dress parade is in 12 days. You better play it by then. Oh, 
Familiar. There you go. That's the uh, how many valves? How, how many valves? Three valves, sir. That's right, right, right. Oh, it's mouthpiece. And it's it's easy to master because it's really more yeah. of an umpa counterpart instrument. Or brass. So, so I got it. I got it. Mine was silver. So I got, so I, uh, so I got it. Three or four days, I got it. Go to the first dress parade, which I didn't mind going to, because that was a chick magnet, the white ducks in the spring. And the, the girls came from all over Virginia. Fine. So now I go through the first, and I'm saying, I showed him, and I'm saying, I didn't show him anything. Where's my revenge? I filled a hole for him. I got to do something. So my roommate, who knew me quite well, said, stop talking about your revenge. You've done everything but blow up the chemistry lab. You can't get in any more trouble. I said, you watch. And he starts finding a matter, most sensitive thing to him at all. Because he's, you know, you have to do. John Philip Ruth, Susa wrote the Washington Post March like this. You will play it like this, and you will enjoy it. So I did the stars. I did the uh, stars. Find about the second dress parade every Sunday, and we got to the rockets red glare and the bombs bursting in there. I put a jazz riff in the middle of it, and I thought he would die. I thought was, I was going to go to a funeral. I played out, played it by the one last time in his funeral. We get back to the band room. He says to me. Don't you ever, ever, ever. And someone says, you know, I, I thought that was pretty good, Major Manch. I really liked it. We should keep it and we'll be distinctive as a marching band. He, he was just trying to push his buttons, too. But uh, I won that war. I, I, and I, I'll tell you, I, you, don't turn ne- you don't turn negatives into positives by, 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 by emotion. You turn them in when you're so violently for or against the possibility of whatever it is happens. It's when you get an opportunity, you grab it. You learn from everything you do. David Petrusha, next book is going to be Gangsterland uh, about Jazz Age New York. But he also wrote Rothstein about Rothstein fixing World Series, the, yeah. the World Series game. So uh, he wanted to ask. I think the idea of baseball as a major major americanization force is a common one i know that my mentor in sports publishing john thorne was born in stuttgart in a refugee camp in 1947 says the same thing and oh i guess the point of divergence for most folks is that they want to be a second baseman or a center fielder, a quarterback, but not necessarily a sports writer. What was it that set your path on to not just observing and loving the national pastime, but writing about it? It's a good question, but I can't give you the, the, the romantic answer that everybody wants to hear and everybody wants to do. I spent years trying not to write sports. I began in this business chasing fire engines and reading police blogs. And that was an invaluable experience. But every time that I got into sports, well, that was because 
I was getting ready to graduate. I was a junior in college, and I got a job. I was putting out school newspaper, and I got a job with the ledger, uh, being a high school correspondent, and then a high school. I was head of all the high school people. I would take these phone calls at six at night. Whatever. And every time I wanted to get out, something happened. I wanted to get out when I graduated because I, I was offered a full-time job, but I wanted to go to the draft board and say, Korean War was on, take me early. And it's in the book. She says, do you have a mental disorder? Nobody ever asked me. I want to go in. If you enlisted three, my father enlisted, of course, not me. If you're drafted, it's two. And in Korea, you were fighting for rotation points and all that sort of stuff. So I was going to come out, GI Bill, go to get, go somewhere, get my pre-college education, and then um, teach English or something up in a small college where I had time to write. And uh, it didn't happen that way. I was very brave because there was no war. My sophomore year, they came across the border. And uh, so I, I didn't plan to get in. I always planned to get out. In fact, one, there were two times I really made an effort. I mean, a huge effort. The last time was when I went to the editor and said, listen, I don't like what I'm doing. And I think the reason is I, I'm not interested in bats and balls. I'm interested in people. And now the people who are reading sports are not interested in people, or my interest in people anymore. So let me write a general column. You know, you don't have to, you never give me a raise again, but let me write a general He said, let me think about it for a week. Came back and said, you're too valuable in sports for us to do that. I said, if that's the case, prove it to me by giving me an enormous raise. They gave me a $15,000 raise. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to turn the raise down, but I can't. I got to quit if I'm not. If I'm not gonna, who wants to hire me? At that point, I was getting older, right? And it occurs to me, if I don't, if I don't stay here, it's going to explode. So as long as I have a typewriter, which we started with, of course, and as long as I have access to news that I can create. I see all those other guys get caught. And I, I think I was probably hypnotizing myself into not starting all over again, not having the guts to do whatever else. Didn't think anybody would hire me to do something. And I think I did a salesman job. Best salesman job I ever did because I never walked away. The purpose of the publishing of the book was nobody really wants stuff I write now if it's not sports. But the purpose of it was, I had to say this. I had to tell this story. There's a lot, and I had to remind myself how freaking lucky I have been. I, one thing I, only thing I ever agreed, two things I agree with Ray Kirkin on, signing of Jackie Robinson, others. The other is that luck is the residue of design. Jerry Eisenberg, author of Baseball Nazis and Natick's Hot Dogs, 
we are really fortunate that the calendar didn't catch you, caught your father in his career, cut his chances of being in the majors short through no fault of his own, not to mention World War One. But uh, I really do hope readers will pick up a copy of this book. There's times, there's alleys, there's places kids are playing stickball in the yard and that are just forgotten and that history doesn't like to put its lens there often. It doesn't want to, maybe wants to look away from something like those, those uh, riots in Newark or something like the great depression. We want to move on and do everything through our phones, but pick up this book, meet some of those people. They were often that we have a lot more in common with them than we do with maybe the big set piece people that you, that you read about. People don't know after the Newark riot, the hatred. Newark before the riot, when I was a kid in the 30s, Newark was a factory town, booming factory town, 410,000 people. And they never got to know each other. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time here. You've, you've been more generous than I could have hoped. And as I said, my face hurts having listened to this. So who doesn't need a smile? Who doesn't need an inspiration to be a little bit better? Please do, everybody out there. Go check it out. Pick up the book. Don't take my word for it. Read Baseball Nazis and Natick's Hot Dogs. You'll see why Jerry Eisenberg is just a legend to me and why I enjoyed reading his column so much all those years. You won't be able to put this book down. And give it to a young person, too. Buy two copies. Why not? Yeah, yeah. We'll do it again. It's very enjoyable. Again, the book is Baseball, Nazis, and Natick's Hot Dogs. Growing up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy of this great book at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to a true hero of mine, of the writing profession and of sports, Jerry Eisenberg. That he took the time to join us is really special to me. I hope all of you enjoyed listening to our conversation. This first person journey he offers in this book, the way that he looks at the relationship with his father so fondly, it's an example for all of us, I think, in our own lives to connect with other people. And it explains the love of baseball in a way I don't think anyone else ever has or anyone else ever could. There are places, living rooms, and fields of dreams where the lenses of history rarely look. They ignore certain people and places, and this is a book that offers those corners of our past in a way that tells us so much about our present. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. And you can visit HistoryAuthor.com to find my social media accounts, as well as over 250 interviews with authors you're sure to enjoy. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Jerry Eisenberg and his dad, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.